Heavenly Father, I want to thank you, Lord, for bringing us here on your holy Sabbath. Lord, this is your holy Sabbath. It's not ours. It's your day of rest. But you give it to us as a gift. And that's what it truly is to be to us, a gift, Lord, of rest from the cares of this life, from the worries and concerns, from even those things that excite us that take our mind away from you. And we're thankful, Lord, for this day that calls our attention to you, who brings us to our ultimate purpose of why we exist. And that is to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, as we have gathered, we come here to hear you, not a man, but you do use men and women to be a voice, to uplift your word and its teaching. So Lord, help me in doing that. Help me in bringing your message to your people this morning. And may it agitate our minds to get more in our Bibles and to make more decisions for you. Is my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. It is around 605 B.C. Daniel and his buddies have just experienced a horrendous journey across the deserts and wilderness of Mesopotamia. They have likely seen family killed and relatives and friends. They have been physically dragged from everything they knew in life, and now they are in a new land. Captives in Babylon. This was not what they were thinking for their adulthood dreams. They're hungry, tired, and spent. Some hope awakens when they learn that instead of being slaves, they will be treated as more like citizens there in Babylon. They are to go to school, get an education in Babylonian schools, the best schools that the nation can offer. And they probably have dormitories they're in and nice homes, not in a prison cell or in some other place at labor camp. So their hope revives that their life may be better than what they suspected. Maybe they'll have a future. As they enter the banquet hall for their first real meal in Babylon, they are eager to eat some decent food. However, their hearts sink when they see the buffet with all sorts of unclean foods, unhealthy things, alcohol of different varieties. They look around in surprise, actually, when they see all their countrymen immediately starting to partake. They stand awkwardly and look each other in the face. They just, don't, they just can't do it. They can't. Every, everyone else is, but they just can't eat the food that's there. Daniel, Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could not partake of the food in Babylon because of their conscience. Their sensitive, God-giving conscience said, no, this is wrong. I cannot do it. We learn of their conscience again in Daniel chapter 3, when literally everyone bows to an idol except them. Again, their countrymen were certainly in the crowds, but Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego couldn't do it. They couldn't even fake it. Their conscience wouldn't allow it even in the face of death. And we know the marvelous deliverance and witness that followed their display of conscience. One of the most courageous verses in the Bible found in Daniel 
chapter 3 states, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was threatening them, hey, you better do this or else. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us. Man, what confidence from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Wow. What started as a simple, conscious-ridden stand over food in chapter 1 of Daniel led those Hebrews to a bold, powerful witness of their conscience in front of the king of the largest empire of the world at that time. And a bold, powerful miracle followed. You know the story. The king looks into the fire, and what does he see? A fourth. And what did that fourth look like to him? The son of man. We must follow our conscience. Here's a quote from Mount of Blessings I'm going to read to you. Found in page 33. I came across this this week. States, In every age, God's chosen messengers have been reviled and persecuted. Yet through their affliction, the knowledge of God has been spread abroad. Every disciple of Christ is to step into the ranks and carry forward the same work, knowing that its foes can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. God means that truth shall be brought to the front and become the subject of examination and discussion. What does God mean? That the truth shall be brought to the front and become the subject of examination and discussion, even through the contempt placed upon it. So how does God bring the truth to the front? Well, the quote goes on to say, the minds of the people must be agitated. You must be stirred up. How does our minds get stirred up? It goes on to say, every controversy, conflict we see in our world, every reproach, every effort, this is where I get my title for the message, to restrict liberty of conscience is God's means of awakening minds that otherwise might slumber. You may ask yourself, why is God allowing some of these things to take place? He doesn't make it take place, but he allows it. Here's your answer. There's too many people slumbering, and they need to be awakened to the real issues at stake. And what's concerning here is every effort to restrict liberty of conscience. Isn't the statement so true? Minds are agitated more than ever. They are searching for and asking, what is there to trust anymore? Who can be trusted? What might be causing our minds to be agitated these days? I believe it all began with the governmental lockdowns over COVID-19. Suddenly, plans erased, kids cannot go to school, child care is in flux, all with fear of this virus looming over our heads and being shouted out, shouted at us from 
every news agency 24-7. I believe the agitation has also been even more fostered by the political and social upheaval that has been and is happening in our nation. You think of what happened politically with the election, January 6th, the summer with the protests and all that. That has stirred up minds, agitated us. What is happening? Stress is everywhere, is it not? Our authorities say this, and one authority says the opposite. We see political and immoral social agendas being taught in our schools, public schools, displayed in our libraries, popping up in children's cartoons, and even on stereo boxes. I don't know if you guys heard anything about the recent Kellogg stereo box. These things and more have caused people to awaken to the vast political, educational, and medical institutional corruption in our nation and abroad. A quote that Pastor Rob shared recently in a staff meeting comes to my mind. It is found in the Review and Herald, September 30th, 1909, and it states, in the great closing work, how many of you guys believe that we're in the closing work of Earth's history? See any hands? You guys believe we're near the end of time? Any of you? In the great closing work of the rebellion, the powers of evil will unite in a desperate struggle. What type of struggle? Desperate struggle to work out their deceptive plans to lead souls to what? Ruin. Who are these powers that are going to be used to do this? She states, ministers and physicians and men in positions of trust as lawmakers will unite in this work of rebellion. Who are the sources that are going to be used to unite again? Ministers? Lawmakers? What? Physicians? I've never seen that. And I was like, whoa. And some of us can kind of see how that's being used even in the current climate we're in. Will unite in this work of what? Rebellion. Notice it's not stated as a work of fostering good care and unity and harmony, but no, no, and rebellion. And the aim is to bring ruin to your soul. Ruin to what? Your soul. What is the ruin being described here? I believe it's a ruin where humanity finds their security in politicians, medical professionals, professors, and religious leaders that reside in our various institutions. The common thread here is dependence on what? Man rather than God. Have you been seeing that a lot? Notice what the Spirit of Prophecy says at the beginning of this paragraph in September 30th, 1909, review an article, review and Herod article. She says this at the beginning of that paragraph that stated what it said about the ministers, physicians, and lawmakers. She says this, the love of Christ for the human family led him, God, to, I mean, Jesus, to assume human nature and to submit to every test that human beings must bear that man might be what? Brought into right relation to his maker. To his maker. What is God's desire for you? He wants you to be brought into right relationship with him. If God's ultimate goal is to bring you and me into right relations with him through Jesus Christ, then we must see that the ruin Satan seeks to bring upon you through using the trusted sources of society, 
ministers, physicians, and lawmakers, is to restrict your liberty of conscience, your mind, from discovering the ultimate truth of God's reconciling love. Is this not what happened during the Dark Ages, when the main church was in control of the flow of information, and liberty of conscience was restricted? 50 million truth-seekers after God's word and so much more were persecuted and martyred. Many of you guys are aware of church history. Some of you may not be. Has our current society been shutting down free information? Has anybody noticed that it is extremely hard to share an opinion about anything these days? Have you guys noticed that? Especially if it deviates, especially if it deviates from the mainstream narrative of what the authorities and officials may be saying. I'm sure you have all heard of individuals being censored from social media. Some of you may not. Some of you are not even on social media, so you may not be aware of that. This problem, however, is not so much about popular individuals either. Reputable ministers, physicians, and lawmakers, the same qualifications as others, have been and are being censored. Never before in human history have we seen how powerful mainstream media is if Satan can control the narrative through news outlets, the World Wide Web, and governmental agencies, and the public sectors, he will be able to manipulate and shape um, whatever agenda he wants. And that agenda is ultimately to lead you and I into false worship. And that's what's painted there in Revelation. He wants your worship. That's what Satan wants. Satan wants your worship. He wants your allegiance. He wants to have control over you. He does not want you to have a conscience. In fact, this statement in Review and Herod goes on to say that Satan's work of rebellion is to struggle against rights, to tempt men to distrust, to distrust God's love, and to doubt his wisdom. Here's, the, here's that statement right there. When Satan and his rebel hosts were defeated and cast out of heaven, they did not give up the struggle against what? Rights. They did not give up the struggle against right, you know, right doing, righteousness. Satan's work has been the same since the days of Adam to the present. That'll be our time. And he has pursued it with what? Great failure? No, no, no. Great success. And what is his great success? Tempting men to distrust God's love and to doubt his wisdom. That's happening. Question, where is these three revealed in a tangible way? That is God's love, God's wisdom, and God's rights. You know, because he was, as it see there, to struggle against rights. Another way to put that, God's righteousness. Where is these three the clearly expressed? God's love, God's wisdom, and God's righteousness in the Bible. Is it not? Isn't that God's clearest expression of his love, his wisdom, and his righteousness is in the Bible? This is why when the early church fell away from the truth of God, around the 300 AD and onward, about one of the first things that it did was restrict access to the Bible and discredit anyone who promoted it and its truths. Thus, when this was successfully done, the world of that era entered into what was called the Dark Ages. Why was it called the Dark Ages? 
because the light of God's word was hidden from the people. And when that happened, it brought in its train great ignorance, horrific atrocities, and poor, and get this, poor health practices when God's word was shelved away. When the Protestant Reformation began in the 1500s and onward, and even a little earlier, one of the first things that was brought back to the people was the Bible. What was brought back to the people? The Bible through people like John Wycliffe. You guys know John Wycliffe? He's known as the morning star of the Reformation. You there? He brought the Bible into the common language of the people. Catholic Church didn't do much to him at that time, but after his death, they hated his influence so much that what they did is they dug up his bones, they burned them, and they threw them in the Rhine River. Why? What was his offense? Bringing the Bible to the people. That would be restricting something, right? And with the Bible being restored, one of the first truths recovered in the Protestant Reformation through Martin Luther was justification by faith through the reconciling love of Christ's atonement for the human race. Wasn't that one of the truths that was surfaced once Martin Luther discovered that he was not saved by works, but by grace alone? It was such a refreshing flood that flooded into his, his, his experience. It shook him to the core, and it started the, you know, the, the beginning embers and flames of the Protestant Reformation. This everlasting gospel message was hidden under the church's works and fear-based theology. The church was about control more than it was about freedom. Friends, the scary thing is we are now seeing Satan's work again in 2020 and 2021 in a more marked way than ever. It's not like it hasn't been happening. It has, but it's more marked. People, people, our, our world is so polarized right now and so divided, it's unreal. It's unreal. This is letting us know how marked this is. His work of causing mankind to doubt God's wisdom and to war against the rights. Is it society warring against righteousness, God's rights definition of what's right and wrong? Is all over society. You try to stand for the traditional right principles of marriage and other things, you see what happens quickly. We see it in our legislative, judicial, and executive branches of government when it comes to marriage and the family. We see it in the medical field where there is next to nothing of promoting the health message of the Bible, good nutrition and natural remedies to deal with disease. A lot of what's happening through the medical industry is pushing pharmaceuticals. It's not necessarily about lifestyle. There are some exceptions, though. We know that. And not only that, but a lot of country, um, a lot of states in our own United States is legalizing marijuana and other things that are harmful to us. And that's just one thing. Is that helping people that be more godly? Just ask yourself that question. What's the most advertised thing on our TVs is alcohol and its consumption. We see it in our public academies, institutions, which are canceling out the wisdom of God and morality, science, and literature. You see this with the LGBTQ movement, transgender. You see it with other things that are happening that are going right at the morality of what God has intended for us and you, me and you, and the teachings of our kids to look within themselves for all their answers or to public officials and government programs. That's what's happening, what's being taught. Friends, we must understand that what I have mentioned and what you and I are observing in our country and throughout the world 
is alarming and is prophetic in its scope. We need to wake up and recognize the signs of the times. We know from prophecy that the United States of America, founded on all the principles of religious freedom and freedom of expression, will reverse and speak like a dragon. This is all symbolized in Revelation 13, lamb-like beasts. And our government, is our government efforts really about what's currently happening in our world right now in 2020 and 2021? Is it really about protecting you from a disease and saving our planet from climate change and carbon emissions and bringing equality to all? Is it really about those things? Listen to this quote from Testimonies, Volume 5, page 451. Notice what it says here. This is interesting. Our country shall do what? Repudiate every principle of its constitution. Let that sink in. This is from Testimonies, Volume 5, page 451. She's talking about the United States of America. Our country shall repudiate every principle of its constitution as a Protestant and a Republican government. And what will they do? Now, there are a lot of things going on in our society amongst millennials and all that. And, you know, they see capitalism and our constitution as, as a wrong thing. And we have a lot of bad things in our country. We do, but uh, what country doesn't? But they're going with socialism and all that. But is that where this is going? Does it say that, oh, they're going to throw that out and bring in socialism? Is that what it says here? Notice what it says. Our country shall repudiate every principle of its constitution as a Protestant and Republican government and shall make provision for the propagation of papal falsehoods and delusions. Then we may know that the time has come for the marvelous working of Satan and that the end is near. That is eye-opening. What is happening now in our world is making provision for the propagation of papal falsehoods and delusions. Notice what else is said in this chapter of Testimonies, Volume 5. While men are sleeping, Satan is actively... While men are what? Sleeping. No wonder why God's trying to allow these things to happen. He's trying to wake us up. Satan is actively arranging matters so that the Lord's people may not have mercy or justice. You ever see that if you try to stand for something in this country now? You could get like a lawsuit against you, have your business closed, depending on what you may be standing for. The Sunday, notice what she, she, she says here, the Sunday movement is now making its way in the broad daylight. Is that what it says? In darkness. In darkness. It goes on to say this. The leaders, who are they? The leaders. I wonder if that's not just our lawmakers. I'm wondering if that's also our religious leaders and physicians that lead out in the health community. I wonder, could that be what it is? I think it is. The leaders are what? Concealing the true issue. Are doing what? Concealing. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? And what is it going to do? The Sunday movement is now making its way in darkness. That's what they're concealing from you. The leaders are concealing the true issue, and many who unite in the movement do not themselves see whether the undercurrent is tending. Its professions are mild and apparently Christian, but when it shall speak, it will reveal the spirit of the dragon. You know who the dragon is, right? Satan? 
What are the leaders using to conceal the true issues? I believe it is climate change initiatives and the social justice reforms that are now happening, which the social justice reforms of today, in my opinion, is very different from the civil rights reforms of Martin Luther King Jr. of his day. And don't get me wrong, by the way, don't get me wrong. Some of the causes within these current movements are not all wrong, are they? They're not. They're not all wrong. They are drawing attention to real problems in society and our environments. We have real problems. We don't know how to treat each other. We're polluting our environments. We're using it for selfish purposes. But the problem is that the climate change initiative and the social justice reforms of today is leaving out God and is actually being used to throw out the moral, social, and environmental truths of God's word. The other thing is that they are in denial of the true root cause of these things. And you know what the true root cause of these things in our climate, in our environment, and our social relations with one another? Sin, rebellion, and selfishness. When we leave out God, we will always go astray. And Isaiah points out the real cause to the tremendous problems in our society. In Isaiah 24, verses 4 and 5, our scripture, well, that wasn't our scripture reading. We'll get to that one. Notice what it says here. Isaiah 24, verse 4 and 5. The earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. Isn't that true, what we see in our world? Isn't that what's happening? It is. Isaiah's not having a blind eye to it. The haughty people of the earth languish. Is there a lot of haughty people in our world? Pride and arrogant people thinking about themselves? Yep. There is. Why is the earth in, the mess, in this mess? Isaiah 24, verse 5 has the answer. The earth is also defiled under its inhabitants. What's defiling the earth? The inhabitants. You and me. Because they have what? What does it nail as the reason why we're experiencing these problems? They have transgressed the law, changed the ordinances, broken the everlasting covenant. Isn't that what ruined heaven for a little bit? Satan challenging God's law, changing, trying to change ordinances, going against God's love, what the everlasting covenant is about. What has caused all this environmental and social problems in our world? Isaiah tells us, the perpetual breaking of God's law. The substituting of what God has said with what man says and not believing the gospel promises of God found in his everlasting gospel. This is why our world and society are a mess. There is real problems in our world, but our leaders, according to spirit of prophecy, the leaders, according to spirit of prophecy, are using these real problems to conceal their true agenda. To do what? to conceal your true gender. Have you ever wondered why some things weren't making sense in 2020? About how they were dealing with COVID, what was happening with the social reforms and all that. It's like, that doesn't make sense. Why is that happening? Why is that, that doesn't add up. Why is there so much hypocrisy over here and this and that? This is it. They're concealing their true agenda, which according to the Bible is establishing a universal society or one world government that leads to false worship in the elevation of a false Sabbath, Sunday, over the true Sabbath on the seventh day, Saturday. That's what, depending on inspiration, that's what the Bible teaches. 
So what are we beholding? So what we are beholding in our world is the groundwork for restricting not only conscience but religious liberty. In fact, they go hand in hand. In light of all this, what should we do? That's the thing. What should you do? That's the important question. So the point of me bringing all of this to our attention is to ask this question. How do you and I persevere in following our God-given conscience? Important question. And more importantly, how do we not allow Satan to keep you and I from knowing and having Christ in our life? Because that's his ultimate aim, right? God sent Jesus to bring us in the right relationship with himself. I believe the follow-up question, that second question, of how not to allow Satan to keep us from the knowledge of God and have him in our life, answers the first. If we are resisting God's drawing influence and bringing us into a closer walk with him, we won't be able to stand and persevere in our convictions and in following our God-given conscience. Because you know what conscience is, right? I looked it up a little bit as I was sitting there in the pew. Conscience shapes human choices and distinguishes human beings from other creatures. Freedom of conscience is at its heart, but still larger than the freedom of religion or belief. They are no, there are no admissible limitations to this freedom, as long as personal convictions are not imposed on others or harm. Consciousness or awareness of something, the definition of conscience is a, is a personal awareness of right and wrong that you use to guide your actions to do right. Who's given us that conscience, by the way? Who's given us freedom of choice? It's the Lord. In other words, your conscience is God-given. No one has the right to infringe upon it. No one. To have this conscience, we need Christ in our lives, for only with him will we have a true God-given moral conscience. Is our lifestyle, yours, my, one in which we are actively embracing God and his ways? Or is our lifestyle one in which we are keeping God in a box and at arm's length? Important question here. Because it is only by the Lord who confirms us and is able to make us stand according to the book of Jude, chapter 1, verse 24, where it says, Now to him, that is Jesus, who is able to keep who? You and me from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is through Jesus alone that we are able to stand in the face of threats, ridicule, and persecution. In saying this, I am reminded of Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Friends, the only reason, if at all, that you are able to stand for your convictions is because Jesus Christ won the victory in his life, as you and for you, and standing for his convictions first in the ridicule and threats that he encountered as, a, as, as growing up as a boy, when in the wilderness, being tempted of Satan after he was baptized, and in the unjust court proceedings with all this fabricated evidence to have him condemned on the cross. He did not bend one iota to the demands of the people. He stood firm on his, con on his convictions and his conscience. He endured perfectly and stood firm for his convictions. You know what? He will give that ability to you to do it in your life. Not apart from himself, 
but with himself as a gift as you receive him more and more into your heart and mind, as stated in Philippians 2.13. Notice what it says here. For it is who? God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasures. Who is it that works in us? God. We need him in us. There's another one, Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able. Who is able? The Lord Jesus Christ. To do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I want that in my life, don't you? I want him to work exceedingly there. This was the source of Daniel's testimony of standing firm for conviction. He purposed in his heart to trust wholly to God, his Savior. That's what he did there when he purposed in his heart there. When he said, I'm not going to eat the king's food. He was underneath that was purposing in his heart to trust wholly to God and his, his Savior. We started this message with re- referencing Daniel, his friends, in his book, Daniel, chapters 1 and 3. Those first tests of conscience led Daniel to a much greater test in his later life in Daniel 6. He was an old man, by the way, too. You remember how the fellow princes of the kingdom were jealous of him and wanted to kill him, right? They didn't like that he had a top position, he was a foreigner. It's like, how dare this guy be there? We want him out of the way. And they couldn't find anything against him. He has such a sterling, like, record. So they were trying to find a way to do it, and they couldn't. So they had a law written, a law written against his religion. Hey, we know what he's faithful with. Let's, let's have a law put together that will get him at odds with the government. And then there, that will disqualify him. And it wasn't just about disqualifying him having a position. They wanted him dead. So this law was put together. And the law was written where you could not pray to any other god but the king for 30 days. For 30 days. And that was the only way that they were going to try to find fault in Daniel. Let's turn to, let's, um, in, in, in Daniel chapter 6, I know I got all the scriptures on the screen and I have this one too, but in Daniel chapter 6, we learned a recipe of how Daniel was able to have this firm boldness to stand for his conscience. And this recipe is for you and me as well. Look at it. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10 says this. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he knew the law, he knew the law right? He wasn't ignorant of it. He went home. And in his upper room with his windows closed. Was his windows closed? No, they were open. Toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees. Get this, he's doing this in full knowledge that this law has been signed. And he doesn't do it once. He doesn't do it twice. He does it three times in violation of the law. He knelt down on his knees three times that day and did what? What the law said you're not to do. Prayed and gave thanks before his God as was his what? You know, Daniel wasn't doing this to just be resistant. He did this because this was his custom. This was his life. God was his everything, as was his custom since early days. What was Daniel's custom? To spend time with God in devotion through prayer and meditation on the promises of God's word three times, three times a day. That fault, remember it was made a fault in the governmental law, in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of that world, proved to be the greatest lifeline for Daniel 
as God later saved him from certain death in the lion's den. Notice what Satan was going for. He was going right for the jugular of what gives you power and strength to prevail against men, and that is your connection to God. He was trying to cut that off. He wasn't successful, Daniel. Friends, we must realize that to per- persevere and follow our God-given conscience and convictions, it does not happen overnight. God can work miracles, but we must realize that we are to receive more and more of God in our life by opening our minds and our hearts to him through the practical study of his word and prayer. I'm going to ask you a personal question. Don't answer out loud. This is for you to smell over. And I'm not outside this question. Just because I'm up here and you're down there, I'm included in this question. How many of us have had a growing devotional time in the Word of God this past year and a half? Or have we been distracted by the cares of this world? Another one that follows that is, how is your devotional life? How is your personal time with God? We will never stand for God if we spend no personal time with him in his word, prayer, and with fellow believers. The Bible is clear that we need each other. Hebrews 10.25 says that we are what? Not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching of the signs of the coming of our Lord. Brothers and sisters, what is your attitude? Here's another question I'm going to pose you. Don't answer out loud. Just think about it in your own heart. What is your attitude about attending church on Sabbath versus missing church and doing your own thing? Do you like and look forward to coming to church, or do you not? Something to think about. This is all important stuff. What is your emotional state, to follow up that one, and attitude regarding being involved with God's church and being an active participant in the cause of the Lord? you kind of strange at that when somebody asks you to do something, you know? Again, this is not you or me. We all are in the same boat here. What is your, what is your personal reaction to this? These are important questions to consider in assessing where our hearts are. Remember, Daniel's custom was what? Spending time with God how many times a day? Three times a day. The days ahead of us are not going to get better. I'm sorry to bear that news. The Bible talks about that. You look at Matthew 24, it says that lawlessness will abound and the love of many will wax cold. The days ahead of us are not going to get better. If any of us are thinking this, we are leading ourselves into a fatal deception. You and I must realize that the most important thing is our relationship with Jesus Christ. Not our spouse, not our kids, not our jobs, not our recreational fun things that we do. Those have their place. But the most important thing is your relationship with God because he's the only who can save you. Our jobs can't do that. Our spouses can't do it. Our kids can't do that. Nothing in this world can save you but Jesus Christ alone. Danny was able to live a life of unfaltering faith when faced with the lion's den because his priority was knowing the Lord Jesus, and counting everything lost for, his, for the excellency of Christ in his life. This is what God was trying to teach Abram, Abraham when he called him out of the Ur of the Chaldees and separating him from his family. You see, in Genesis chapter 12, the calling of Abraham, God made several promises to him, one of which is that he will bring him into a land, he will make of him a mighty nation, and provide him a seed to bring that 
about that promise of a mighty nation. That's what he promises him there. Now, a lot of times Abraham is painted in such a way that he had this implicit trust and belief in God. Isn't that sometimes how we talk about Abraham? The man of faith. But this was not the case, especially in his earlier experience with God. Soon after he was called out of his home, he had an experience of fear for his life. He had to go down to Egypt because there was a famine, and he was fearful because his wife was very beautiful, Sarah, and he was fearful that the Pharaoh would kill him so that he could have Abram's wife. And so as a result, he came up with a scheme. He basically said to his wife, Hey, Sarah, I need you to do something to help me out here. Go and lie to the Pharaoh here and tell him that, you know, you're my sister. That you're my sister. And she did that, of course. You see that in the story. And the Pharaoh ends up taking her into his, his palace or whatever. And you know what's interesting here is Abraham was putting confidence where? Was it in God in this situation or was it in his flesh? It was in his flesh, right? He was not thinking about his wife or her safety. He was actually thinking selfishly about his own safety and protection, right? That's the whole reason why he had to lie. He's like, I don't want to die. But whatever happens to you, I guess you're on your own, wife. It's pretty terrible, right? And you know what else he was doing too? He was forgetting the promises of God. He was forgetting the promises of God. When we forget God's promises of God, we do things like what Abraham does. And this is our problem as well. We forget God's promises and we go for our natural mode of operating, to trust in self and scheming ways to get out of a crisis in our life. And we reason in our minds that we got a better plan. This is what Abram did. The amazing thing of it all is that even through this situation, God did not leave Abram. He got Abram and Sarai out of this situation, did he not? You know? Abraham's not trusting God here. He's protecting his own skin, but yet God worked a way to get him out of that situation. You know what this tells me? Great are God's mercies towards his stumbling and self-preserving children of which you and I are. Isn't his mercies great towards us? Praise the Lord for that. And we see that in the example of Abraham. We see that in the example of Abraham. This is encouraging. It really is. The good news for you and me is God is long-suffering. He does not leave us when we are trying to learn what it means to walk with him in the moments of foolish unbelief in our life. We have those many moments. Our natural inclination is unbelief, actually, to distrust and to try to figure things out ourselves. This was Abram's inclination as well, and God had to make himself clear in Genesis 15, verse 1. Here's what what it says. After these things, what things? What happened in Egypt? That was in chapter 13. And then if you get to chapter 14, there was a situation with his nephew, Lot, you know, taken captive, and he went after there and helped out his, his nephew. And God says this, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid. Hmm. I think he's going right to the core of what happened in Egypt. Abram, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. God was saying to Abram, do you remember my word to you? I called you out of your home in the earth of the Chaldees and separated you from your parents because I have a plan for your life. I have promised to bring you into the land and give you seed and make of you a mighty nation to bless all nations in, your, in the world. Abram, you need to get this. 
my purposes for you have not been accomplished. Therefore, your life is not in danger. You know his purpose was to have a promised son? Did he have a promised son at the point when he was in Egypt? He visited the promise, you know, the promised land, but he wasn't there. My promises for you have not been accomplished. Therefore, your life is not in danger. I am your shield. You do not have to worry about protecting your skin and saving your life. I will do it, Abram. I also want you to know my ultimate plan for you is that I am your reward, salvation through me. And I want to use you to bring me, the reward, to other nations so that they can learn of me and see my love for them as well. That's why I believe God was trying to say to him through that promise there, how I, when he says, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward, do not be afraid. My friends, before the four angels of Revelation 7 released the four winds, God is promising you the same thing that he promised Abram. Do not be afraid, Charles, Lori, David, Sam, John, Sally, Mike, whatever your name is. Do not be afraid. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. He's telling you that this morning, that he is your shield and he is your exceedingly great reward. God's aims and purposes for your and my life in the current climate of making efforts to restrict the liberty of conscience and rural leaders concealing their true agenda with movements in darkness to make Sunday laws, Sunday worship a law, is that he first wants you to know he's not aloof. He's not aloof to what's happening in your personal life or what's happening politically or what's happening in the social construct of our society. He's not aloof to any of this. His eye and hand is over our in your life, mine, your life. He also wants you to know that he loves you immensely and is working for you and your family's redemption. He wants to reassure you that he will bring this all to an end. That's what he's going to do. He's going to bring it all to an end with the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ. That's how this is going to be solved, with the second coming of Christ. And you know what? You are his reward. And he will bring his reward, which you are as well. You are his reward as well. Not only is he your reward, but God bought you with an infinite price. You are his reward. You know how things are when you have something expensive? You keep an eye on it, don't you? Lock it up. Well, you're God's reward. You are expensive to God. And he's going to bring you to the promised land. I want to end my message with looking at a quick snapshot of what was the Apostle Paul's hope in the time that he lived where he was faced with the most severe censorship and cancel culture of his time, where immorality was flaunted throughout society and the worship of nature was normal place, where people were being imprisoned and killed for the most unjust things. What was Paul's perspective in that climate? Notice what it says in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 3. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the what? Flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. So Paul is telling you something. Having confidence in the flesh is not going to cut it for you. And then he tells you what it did for him before he learned that. Here's what it says. Circumcised the eighth day of the, uh, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. 
Let me ask you this before we continue reading this passage. What are you putting your confidence in today? Is it in investing in gold? If you're a tech person, Bitcoin, looking forward maybe to the economy crashing, storing up food, food shortage or whatever? Is it in stocking up personal self-defense items like guns and ammunition? Nothing against those who are doing that, but are you putting confidence in that or in self-defense items um, and security devices? How about a certain political, environmental cause or leader? Putting confidence in any of that? That those type of things are going to end whatever crisis or whatever issue that we have in our world? We've got news for you. None of that's going to help. None of that's going to work. Let's continue here in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But what things were gained to me? These I have counted loss for who? Christ. Yet, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as what? Rubbish. King James says dung. Count them as dung. That I may gain Christ. That I may what? Gain Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul counted Jesus Christ as the prize of his life. Christ in his wisdom, that was his prize. Not the wisdom of the world, but Christ and his wisdom. Christ and his love. The approbation of Christ was his prize, not the approbation of the world. Christ and his righteousness was Paul's prize. Not his own righteousness, as you saw there. He did that already. He knew it didn't work. He was still without assurance when he was trusting to his righteousness. He found his hope and completeness in trusting in the righteousness of Christ alone. This afternoon, is liberty of conscience important to you? To be firm in your convictions, whether small or great? To dare to be a Daniel, as my children sing? God has promised that he will help you and uphold you in following your conscience in what is right and good and true, and ultimately in following God. Is Jesus Christ your prize? If he is, liberty of conscience will be vitally important to you. Because what is Satan's aim again? To keep you having a right relationship with Jesus. Is that not true? It is. And so he wants to sabotage your ability to follow your conscience in that. Because your conscience is to lead you into right relationship with Jesus. Notice Isaiah 41. Here's an awesome promise. This is my last thing I'm going to say, and we'll be done. Isaiah 41, verse 10 to 13. Here we go. Isaiah 41, verse 10 to 13. Fear not, 
Isn't fear the number one thing Satan uses to get us not to follow our conscience? It goes on. For I am with you. Do we feel alone in our convictions to right and truth? Do you feel that way at times? Like you're the only one standing for the rights, or I don't want to stand for the right because I don't want to be alone in this? God says, fear not, for I am with you. You're not alone. Was Daniel alone in the lion's den? He might, have been, he might not have been able to see God there in the lion's den, but was he alone? What about the three worthies who are in the furnace? Were they alone? They were before they were thrown into the furnace, and then sometime moments later, maybe they didn't even see Jesus. Maybe they did, but the king did. They weren't alone. You are not alone. Be not dismayed. Don't be discouraged about what you're seeing in the world. You know, I was at a conference in uh, Colorado, and one of the presenters was like, we shouldn't be shocked when the world acts like the world. Should we? <laughs> but we act like it at times. Like, wow, they just did that. Well, they did this over here, and I do that too. But we shouldn't be shocked. Be not dismayed. Be not discouraged what you see in the world. For I am your God. Remember, God's our reward. For I am your God. I will what? Strengthen you. That's God's promise to you. He will strengthen you. You don't have strength? God says, don't worry. I will strengthen you. Do you think he strengthened Daniel's three friends when the king was threatening him? You better do this or else. Well, I'm sorry. We're not going to do it. Well, I'm going to heat that furnace seven times hotter and get you even more freaked out. Who strengthened them at that time? I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. He's emphatic here. I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to be with you. You see this echo of what he was saying to Abraham too? Fear not. I'm your shield. I'm your exceeding great reward. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is his promise. He will do this. What about those who are going against me, Lord? Behold, all those who were incensed, annoyed, or infuriated because you're following your conscience, you're following your convictions, God says, behold, all those who were incensed, annoyed at you for doing that, against you, shall be ashamed and disgraced. What's going to happen to those guys? They're going to be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing, and those who strive with you shall what? Perish, shall perish. You shall seek them and not find them. Those who contended with you and your convictions to follow what you know to be right, those who war against you shall be as nothing as a non-existent thing. See what happened to Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom? It became a non-existent thing. It was a threat to God's people, but it became non-existent. For I, here's what he says now, final part here of this verse, for I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, fear not, I am with you, and I will help you. This is what God, our reward, is to us. What you see here in this promise. He's our help. He's our strength. He's our salvation. He's our righteousness. He's our everything. How many of you want to be a man, a woman of conscience more than ever? Is that your desire? To be strengthened, to follow what you are convicted to be right, especially when it comes from God's word? 
God's promising you he's going to help you. How many of you want to say, Lord, that's me? Want to raise your hand? Want to say, God, strengthen me to follow the conscience you have given me. Strengthen me to be not only a respecter or follow my conscience, but respecting others' right to follow their conscience, even if it, I don't agree with it. Isn't that your desire? God does that. Why can't we join him in that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your love, your kindness. Lord, we're living in interesting times. We are looking at what's happening in 2020 and 2021 differently. I'm sure we are. Some may not even agree with some of the points I've been making this message, but hopefully they can agree with one point here, Lord, and that is that our conscience is going to be threatened. And that is the most precious thing that you've given us. And that the only way that that can be preserved, Lord, is by a life of devotion to you. Help us, Lord, in this time of earth's history, Lord, where many are leaving off you for other things. Help us, not, help us not to leave you nor forsake you, Lord. You have promised you will never leave us nor forsake us, Lord. Bring us more into your word as, we're, as, as we are in the center of this year of 2021, Lord. Bring us more into the center of your will for our lives. Be with every single one here, Lord, as they contemplate the things that were said. And may they go and study these things out themselves, Lord. May they be able to see things of what's, uh, you know, what's happening in our world in the context, Lord, of what we know prophetically in your word. And help us, Lord, to stand with you, Lord, by allowing you to stand and have residence in our hearts. It's my prayer in Jesus' name, amen.